it's it's reality. Drought's going to hit wherever you are in the world. And with climate change, the likelihood is is increasing. But what seems to be the overriding pattern is we're getting more extreme events when we do get rain and then longer spells without rain between. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 155 with Brad Lancaster. Figuring out how to get your tiny house a supply of fresh water is one of the biggest challenges you'll face living off-grid. Wouldn't it be great if we could simply capture and use the water that falls out of the sky? I had always thought that rainwater harvesting in a tiny house would be inconvenient and ineffective due to the small roof size. Enter today's guest, Brad Lancaster. Brad is a tiny house dweller himself and author of several award-winning books about rainwater harvesting, and he has completely changed my mind. Not only is rainwater harvesting doable in a tiny house, but I'm actually planning on implementing some rainwater capture in my own setup. Don't miss this conversation with Brad Lancaster so you can learn how to get started with rainwater harvesting. Did you know that I personally send a tiny house newsletter every week on Tuesdays? It's called Tiny Tuesdays, and it's a weekly email with tiny house news, interviews, photos, and resources. It's free to subscribe, and I even share sneak peeks of the things that are coming up, ask for feedback about upcoming podcast guests, and more. It's really the best place to keep a pulse on what I'm doing in the tiny house space and also stay informed about what's going on in the tiny house movement. To sign up, go to thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter. I'll never send you spam, and if you don't want to receive emails, it's easy to unsubscribe. Also, I have a huge announcement coming up in early April, and if you're hoping to build or buy a tiny house in the next year, you're not going to want to miss it. The best way to find out is to subscribe to the Tiny Tuesdays newsletter at thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter. That's thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter. All right, I'm here with Brad Lancaster. Brad is the author of the best-selling, award-winning book, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, and co-founder of NeighborhoodForesters.org. Since 1993, Brad has run a successful permaculture education, design, and consultation business focused on integrative, regenerative approaches to landscape design, planning, and living. In the Sonoran Desert, with just 11 inches of annual rainfall, he and his brother's family harvest about 100,000 gallons of rainwater a year on an eighth-acre urban lot and adjoining right-of-way. Over a million gallons more is annually harvested by neighborhood foresters-led efforts throughout the neighborhood. This harvested water is then turned into living air conditioners of food-bearing shade trees, abundant gardens, and a thriving landscape incorporating wildlife habitat, beauty, medicinal plants, and more, all the while reducing downstream flooding. The goal of Brad's book series and overall work is to empower his clients and community to make positive change in their own lives and neighborhoods by harvesting and enhancing free on-site resources such as water, sun, wind, shade, community, and more. It's catching on as evidenced by tens of thousands of practitioners and demand for Brad's work around the world. Brad Lancaster, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. And hey, just one quick uh, correction on the introduction, although maybe it was just a blip in the audio. 
we live on an eighth of an acre, not eight acres. Ah, an eighth of an acre. Even more impressive. Yeah. Um, so I so appreciate you taking the time to do this interview. And I've, I've been really excited to talk with someone about rainwater harvesting. Um, I'm curious if you could like just start us with the basics, even though the rainwater harvesting maybe defines itself, but can you give your definition of, of what is rainwater harvesting? Yeah. So rainwater is the capture of uh, rainwater for a multitude of uses. And there's two uh, typical ways that that's done. One is with active strategies and one is with passive strategies. So the active strategies, that's collecting water off a clean surface, such as a roof, Mm -hmm. directing that water to a gutter, then through a screen and then into a tank. So you've got water readily at hand for whatever use you want. And that's typically what people most commonly think of. But the passive strategy, that has a much greater capacity. And with a passive system, you're not tanking the rain, you're planting the rain. So you direct uh, rainfall and runoff into water harvesting earthworks or rain gardens, basically uh, basin-like shaped landforms that are vegetated and mulched. So they act as living sponges that rapidly absorb the water. So you reinvest it rather than drain it away. And then you access that water in the form of life, such as fruit trees and their fruit, uh, gardens, wildlife habitat, shelter, shelter belts, beauty, and so on. And I like to harvest water in integrating both active and passive strategies. Interesting. So it sounds like if you are living off grid and you don't have a source of water from, say, like the city or town where you live, you might want to employ both passive and active techniques, you know, the active resulting in, you know, water that you can, you know, wash your hands with and, you know, cook food with and the, the passive resulting in, in food to eat. Yeah, I would say wherever you live, if you're connected to the grid or not connected to the grid, it definitely always makes sense to do the harvest of water with both active and passive strategies especially because with these passive strategies, they can receive the overflow water from your tank. So instead of an unconscious, troublesome discharge of overflow water where it might flood your house or other things you don't want flooded, you can utilize that overflow water not as a forgotten water or an ignored water, but rather as a resource water that you can direct to these earthworks and plantings that can then help to shade and shelter your tank, resulting in cleaner water. Because the cooler the temperature at which you store the water, the higher the quality of that water. You can also set up these uh, rain-irrigated plantings to passively cool your structure in the summer months and passively heat it in the winter months. And the other thing with these passive strategies is they can harvest all water not just your rainwater, because water naturally moves with gravity to the low points. So you can also direct your household gray water, your dark gray water, air conditioning condensate, and more, all to the same rain garden earthworks. Very cool. 
and I, I, it says it in your bio, but I can hear the permaculture influence in what you're saying, you know, kind of thinking about harvesting water as more of a complete system beyond just maybe of tank and a bucket um, and, and into a whole system. Yeah, definitely. And especially in the tiny house uh, context, it's super important to be making the most of every square foot or square meter of space you have, indoor space. Mm -hmm. And what makes a, an effective tiny house work is good integrated design. So you're typically getting your furniture to do multiple things. And we want, should be doing the same thing with our water harvesting systems and landscapes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, that water is one of the biggest challenges for, for tiny, would-be tiny home dwellers, particularly, you know, if they're building a tiny house on a trailer and they're, they're potentially going to be moving around a bit. Um, you know, finding a place to put your tiny house and then getting access to water can be quite a challenge. Um, both from a logistical perspective, just being too far from any source of water, you know, any city source of water, and also just the issue of, of freezing temperatures and, and, you know, what happens in the winter when you are harvesting rainwater or, or sorry, in, in the traditional model, when you have a hose that's running to your neighbor's house and then it's winter. Now, how do you keep that from freezing? Yeah. Well, um, I would say that uh, it's not that hard, depending on what you're trying to achieve. So with the passive water harvesting earthworks, that can be done anywhere you've got soil around you. <laughs> and it can cost as little as the price of a shovel, because you're basically just moving dirt to make a topography that receives water rather than drains water mm -hmm. and receives and infiltrates it where it's a resource, not a liability. And then in terms of the tank systems, more what I see is the limitation with a tiny house, you've got a smaller roof, so you've got a smaller catchment surface. So um, there, as that's the case, what becomes more important is that you cycle and reuse your water more times so your need for water is less so along with harvesting your rainwater you ought to be harvesting your gray water which is your lightly used sink shower or washer water use it again cycle it again as the planet's natural hydrological system does as opposed to just one use and throw it away so uh if you're on a trailer with your house and you want a tank, that's going to create an additional thing you need to carry, which would be the tank. But you could design your tiny house so the tank could go into the home as the home is being pulled on the trailer. And then you pull the tank out and set it next to the structure when you're set in a place for a little while and you're all ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and sorry, I just realized you also brought up another concern of winter use. So if you, this would depend on where you're setting yourself up. So um, most places in Arizona, even the higher elevations of Flagstaff, Arizona, you know, which is an alpine forest, you can harvest rainwater year round because the, if, as long as you have a large enough tank that's 500 gallon minimum capacity, the tank water won't 
completely freeze um, because you've got enough mass in the tank and it's water as long as it's on the south winter sun facing side of your structure. And then you just want to make sure all your plumbing is below the frost line or insulated so it doesn't freeze. And you could just keep it simple of having a full port faucet valve on the tank that you, you cover with ample insulation for your climate. Uh-huh. And then just make sure when you know weather's really going to dip down, you've got some stored water in the home as well. Right. So if you have to wait a while for things to thaw out, uh, you're not going to run out of water. Fascinating. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that. Just the, I guess, the thermal mass of 500 gallons of water and water's properties of, you know, taking a lot of energy to bring it from a liquid to frozen, um, that it would resist some freezing temperatures. Yeah, and you could choose a darker colored tank for your winter months and then in your summer months grow or uh, build shade to cool it in the hot months. Interesting. Yeah. And could you say more? You you touched on this earlier, just the water quality being um, kind of like the colder you can store your water, the higher quality it is. What? Why is that? Well, just think of uh, if you're checking out a pond or whatnot, that uh, it's cooler mountain water, you know, a, a pond in a in a mountain setting tends to be quite clear, uh, really high quality. But then if you get to a much hotter climate, mm-hmm. you're going to find that you're going to have a lot more algae and whatnot growing in the, in the water. Right, there, right. There's a lot of other life um, that uh, may not contribute to the quality of the water as it gets hotter. Got it. So... I actually, I, I have a little experience, um, kind of random connection, just a, a family member actually um, owned an off-grid house in the Bahamas where water, you know, the, it was completely off-grid. It was kind of a cool project. Um, I remember they had, I think, 1,500 gallons of storage, so three 500-gallon tanks, and um, they did actually put a small amount of bleach in the tanks um, just to make the water, just to clean the water a bit. Is that, I'm, I'm imagining that as a permaculture practitioner, you probably are not an advocate for, for using bleach in your tanks. It, it depends. It depends on okay. the situation. So uh, my approach is how can I get the water harvesting system to naturally keep itself clean and filter mm-hmm. impurities to the greatest degree possible before you know so i can perhaps avoid a need for a chemical treatment or mechanical treatment yeah so in uh in my book rainwater harvesting for drylands and beyond volume 1 the third edition i lay out 10 principles or guidelines on how to design a system so that it will be largely self-cleaning. So, you know, simple thing is don't have a tank that allows sunlight into the tank because then you'll mm-hmm. get green algae growth. And at your inlet into the tank, you want to ideally have, say, a rain head screen, which is a screen box 
just below your downspout as it exits the gutter that has a 45 degree angle on it. So leave, leaves, other organic debris, um, insects, critters uh, are all shunted off like a slalom slide uh-huh. and just uh, the water enters the system. So you're, you're keeping it clean from the get-go and you can start even before that. So when you're designing your tiny house or, or choosing one to buy or rent, what have you, select a non-toxic roof surface so the design of your structure doesn't contaminate the water. You want to similarly select a tank that is made for potable or drinking water uh, storage. Otherwise, if, if you don't, you might choose a, a tank that could contaminate your water. <laughs> right. So it's just you know a simple approach there. Keep it clean from the get-go. Yeah. So what would a non-toxic roof material be? Well, it's hard to find here. You know, stainless steel is great. It's quite common in Asia. Um, But you can find other metal roofs. Australia is way ahead of us because they actually rate their metal roofing for potable water collection. Uh I don't yet see that in U.S. manufacturers of, of metal roofing. But but on the whole, uh, you know, like your galvalume metal roof's a good good way to go. Okay, okay, interesting. So, um, and and I'll, sorry, I'll just add. Yeah, please. On the rainwater harvesting page of my website, um, on the in the resources section, I list various roof options and those that are rated mm-hmm. for potable water collection. So there's even some roof paints that are available. So let's say you have an asphalt shingle roof, you could paint yep. over that with a a paint that's made for potable water collection. Okay. And what about things like, you know, bird, you know, birds poop on your roof, um, you know, debris. Well, I guess the debris is going to get shunted out from the the rain head, but what about, yeah. What about things like, like bird poop or other environmental things that could be on your roof? Well, metal roof's going to be solar cooking it. Ah, yes. So that's helping. Then the rainhead screen I mentioned before, then you also could divert the first flush of water coming off your roof to plantings instead of the tank. So the dirtier water Mm -hmm. that's carrying whatever debris is accumulated on your roof since the last rain is diverted away rather, rather than into your tank. And you can draw the water from your tank, not from the very bottom, but off, off the bottom a little bit. So you're not drawing out the sludge of whatever makes it through the screen and is accumulated on the bottom of the tank. Just leave that on the bottom to act as a you know, naturally occurring sludge layer, which can be inhabited by beneficial life forms, like clear algae, which can actually help clean your tank. And that's which uh, that, that can be an issue if you're just going the bleach route. Mm-hmm. You could be killing off some of the beneficial life forms that are helping clean your tank, mm. as well as killing off those that might be harming you. So, Right. It's the, uh, it's the kind of scorched earth approach, kill everything. Yeah. Uh, but there's worse scorched earth approaches than that. <laughs> okay. 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 Um, so... And and I'll just add this too. Yeah. You know, rather than 
bleaching all your water for all uses, including irrigation of your plants, mm -hmm. if you irrigate from your tank, why don't you only treat the water that you're using to drink? Sure. Simplify the system that way. Yeah. So only treat water for the needs that need treated water. Right, right. That can dramatically reduce the cost and the size and cost of the system. Sure. So I have so many different, different, you've, you've said so many things that I want to follow up on, but I, I actually was thinking maybe, um, could you tell us about, about your gray or sorry, your rainwater harvesting system at, at your own home? Um, you know, you mentioned, or you told me in advance that, you know, you only have 400 square feet of roof catchment and you live in the desert. Um, so tell, tell us about your system. Yeah. So I live in Tucson, Arizona, where we get 11 inches of rain in an average year. I live in a 200 square foot on footprint, uh, tiny home. How uh, that would be interior space is 200 square feet. But um, I've added a porch, a uh, covered porch on the uh, east side to shade me from the morning sun and give me an outdoor kitchen area. So that gives me an additional um, 100 square feet of roof for total 300. And then I have also collect water from the adjoining house, a section of that roof to up it to 400 square foot of catchment area, uh, roof catchment area. And I have two 1,000 gallon tanks. And so for a total of 2,000 gallons uh, tank capacity for the structure. And in, a, in an average year of rainfall, that, that provides me with 95% of my all my domestic water needs, you know, drinking, cooking, bathing, irrigation for and just around the structure. Now, um, we are in an extreme uh, drought right now. This is the driest on record in Tucson. Mm -hmm. So instead of getting our typical 11 inches of rain a year, uh, we got four. So my tanks are very low. And now I'm reserving the use of that water only for drinking and cooking. Okay. All other uses I've ceased. And uh, I do have the, the, the luxury of having city water backup. And so I'm using that now for my bathing and, you know, washing of clothes so that my drinking rainwater, drinking water supply can make it till the next rain, which may not be yeah. till the summer. So six months away. Wow. wow. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about the drought. That's, uh, unfortunate for sure. Well, unfortunate, but it's, it's reality and, uh, drought's going to hit wherever you are in the world. And mm -hmm. with climate change, the likelihood is, is increasing. So you, your overall rainfall may or may not change, but what seems to be the overriding pattern is we're getting more extreme events when we do get rain and then longer spells without rain between. So everyone should be designing for drought. Right. And uh, whether you live in a tiny house or not, what I think is great about not just rainwater harvesting, but also household gray water harvesting 
condensate harvesting, street runoff harvesting, the harvest of all free on-site waters, is it's going to reduce your utility bills, your cost of living. And also, by living with these systems, you're going to become more familiar with them, and you're going to be far more resilient in both wet and dry climates. You'll be more resilient to drought. You'll be more resilient to flooding in the wet climates because of the way you are managing water and learning from that. And even though I'm having to draw on the city backup water right now for a number of my water uses, when, for the many years that were average, I was able to help reinvest and infiltrate rainwater into the municipal system by basically giving back or infiltrating more water into the system and thus the aquifer and whatnot than I took out. And uh, so um, I think this type of you know living is is the way to go, you know, in, yeah. in normal times and in adverse times because it it makes us more resilient in both, not just for ourselves, but for the entire community. So, you know, what if everyone in the city gave back more water to the system than they took out? It would be amazing. In fact, in Tucson, this desert community, it turns out that more rain falls on the surface area of Tucson in an average year of rain than the entire population of over a half million people consumes of municipal water in a year. Mm. Yet, the vast majority of those people don't ha currently harvest their water, but rather drain it away. Right. So the conventional way of living, we're actually making things worse over time rather than better. But we could easily flip it if we made the conscious choice to live differently and chose to give back more than we took. Then rather than having our groundwater table drop year after year, it could rise instead of having the water quality worse and it can improve. Yeah. And that's what I'm finding on site. And that's what I find around the world in my travels. Yeah. Seeing what individuals and communities are doing with harvesting of water. Is that, is that happening in, in Tucson, for example? Like, are you seeing cities and municipalities in dry, particularly dry locations kind of start to come around on this and actually encourage it in new construction? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I worked with a number of other folks to get some rainwater harvesting ordinances uh, passed. First of all, uh -huh. talking about a passive system, we cut the street curb to allow street runoff water to enter street side tree basins so the street could irrigate street side trees for free mm -hmm. and when we did this it was illegal so we did it on a sunday when no one from the city was watching <laughs> and we started with one small system so if mistakes were made there wouldn't be any big problems we worked through our mistakes fixed them improved the system and then eventually approached the city so using our site as a pilot project we um, worked with the city for a number of years and have now legalized the harvest of rainwater uh, or of stormwater from streets via curb cuts to street side plantings and in-street plantings. 
So not only is it legalized, it's now incentivized with rebates and even mandated in new city road construction or major renovation. So that speaks to the power of small working examples. We've, I've also worked with others to legalize and incentivize and mandate the harvest of household gray water in various instances. So when we started doing this, you know, we were the only ones in our neighborhood doing it. And uh, most people didn't know what the term water harvesting meant. Now you can go to any neighborhood in the city and you'll find folks doing it. It's not yet mainstream, but it's now part of the vernacular. And it's now recognized by uh, Tucson Water as one of our water sources. When we started, rainwater was not even considered a water source. It was considered something to get rid of, which is insane. So all we had was a, uh, a stormwater control or you know, flood abatement uh, um, department. We didn't have a, it wasn't, it was promoting the getting rid of the water, not the harvesting and reinvesting it. Now that's, that's underway in the shift. There's been a, not, a lot of good shifts. We got to go further, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to see some of the progress we've made. And, and I see this around the world. It's not just Tucson doing this. A number of communities are waking up. That's awesome. Um, one of the big barriers that, that people in movable tiny homes can face when they try to find a place to park their home is, you know, what is happening with their gray water. Um, I would say the majority of tiny homes tend to use compost toilets, either, you know, simple sawdust style or you know, fancier commercial compost toilets, but there's still that issue of, okay, this, the water that comes out of the sink and the water that comes out of the shower. Um, what are you doing in your tiny home with that gray water? Yeah. So I keep the kitchen sink drain water separate from sink shower washing machine. Okay. Because kitchen sink water is dark gray water. There's more food materials in there. If people are cooking with meat, there, there's a much greater chance of E. coli and whatnot in the water. So you have to um, uh, do a, a little bit more in terms of how you manage that water so all is uh, safe and good. So I'm going to start with the gray water, which is the water from your bathroom sink, your shower, bathtub, and or washing machine. That's okay. much safer and easier to deal with with simpler systems. So uh, if you got a, now my tiny house uh, has a foundation. It's in the ground. It's mm -hmm. not a trailer. Mm -hmm. Those uh, folks with trailers, it's even easier. I mean, mobile homes are, are some of the easiest to access your gray water yep. because it's very easy to get underneath and access your plumbing. So you want to make sure you tap your gray water upstream of your dark gray water. Ah, okay. Okay. So have a have a diversion valve upstream of where the dark gray water enters, and then you send them to two separate sites where you're util utilizing the water. So 
I send my gray water to vegetated mulched basins or rain gardens in the landscape. That's the easiest way to deal with it. So I'm using living filters of soil life, vegetation, um, uh, mycorrhizal fungi, uh, beneficial bacteria to filter and utilize the water. And the difference with, and I just send the gray water direct, but I distribute the gray water to multiple points, not just one point. Because if I always sent it to one point, there's a chance that that one spot's going to get oversaturated and become anaerobic, which means lacking oxygen. And then it'll start to stink. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I distribute my gray water to multiple points with, there's a number of ways you can do it. Branch drain gray water system is is one of those ways. Or with your washing machine, you can have multiple drain pipes next to the washing machine. And every time you do a load of wash, you move the drain hose into a different drain pipe that each one taking it to a different plant. Okay. All of this I cover in depth in uh, my second book, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, Volume 2. Just make sure you get the full color second edition. Okay. And um, the... So gravity sends the water right on out there, and I don't have to buy or maintain a filter. The natural living system does all that for me. And I take it another step further. I'm directing that gray water where I want vegetation. So, and I'm doing the same thing with my rainwater. So uh, let's just talk about passive heating and cooling. At minimum. I want to have trees on the east and west side of my structure. So they shade me mm -hmm. from the hot, rising, and setting summer sun, but they let in the full winter sun from the equator-facing side of my structure. That would be the south side in the north hemisphere or the north-facing side in the southern hemisphere. So that way, I'm not only getting beauty and food from the trees or whatnot I grow, and, but I'm also getting free air conditioning and free heating. Right. Just because I've given a little more thought of, well, how does the sun change its path through the sky through the seasons? So in the winter months, the sun is low in the sky. And it's all in the northern hemisphere, it's always in the southern part of the sky. And then in the summer months, the uh, sun is going to rise not in the southeast like it does in winter, but it's going to rise in the northeast. It's going to be almost directly due east, you know, about 9 a.m. or so. Yep. And then it'll be close to directly overhead or closer to directly overhead in the midday hours and then set in the northwest again. So um, by having trees on the east and west side, you shade out that hot summer sun in the morning and afternoon, but you're letting in all the winter sun. And you can take it a step further. You can also plant a belt or a semicircle of trees or, or it's a tiny house or a single tree sure. or, or large shrubs on the north side of the house as well. Again, this would be for the northern hemisphere um, that can reflect some heat that, and light that comes over your house roof in the winter months can hit that vegetation and reflect on your otherwise cold, shady side. Mm. And it can deflect winds around your structure. So you can also place all this in relationship to wind. It's kind of hard to do all this audio-wise. Um, it's better with visuals. Yeah. So uh, I'm getting double duty that way. I'm not only getting a reuse of my water, I'm getting further uses from the vegetation because of how I've 
place the vegetation in relationship to my trailer. And let's just say this right off the bat, even before you get to the landscape, when you park your trailer, park your tiny house, if it's on wheels, or if you're going to set it in the ground like mine, have the yeah. long, let's say it's a rectangle, have the long walls face south, due south and due north, and the short walls east and west. Yep. That way you're going to have a long wall that can absorb full winter sun in the south, and you have shorter walls and less surface area that get hit by the summer rising and setting sun on the east and west. Yep. So get your orientation right. Then do you get your plantings that build on that proper orientation. Then direct your rainwater, be it your tank overflow or your gray water, to those plantings to grow healthier, more vibrant plants mm -hmm. that, that build on that right early work, correct early work. Nice. So I think we were at the so so you're talking about diverting the gray water to those plants now what about the dark gray water okay so for the dark gray water you can choose a, an area where you're going to direct that water but uh it's if you're going to do this legally so in in arizona mm. we have legalized the gravity fed harvest of dark gray water within the landscape without an expensive septic tank system. Right. Okay. Um, and I cover how that's done uh, in my volume two book, the second edition. And uh, even if you're not in Arizona, you could approach your various authorities, show them the precedent that's been set in Arizona, and they may likely change the codes and whatnot to allow you to do the same. Okay. But, uh, the biggest difference with the kitchen sink water is, um, if you're doing it through this legal system is you're discharging that subsurface as opposed to on the surface via what's called a, a subsurface infiltration chamber. It's like a Quonset hut looking thing that's got no bottom to it, but it creates this big void space. Okay underground uh very shallow you want it you want to be discharging your dark gray water in the top 12 inches of the soil where you have maximum soil life and filtration okay so the difference between the kitchen sink water and the gray water is your gray water can be discharged on the surface into but it's only on the surface for seconds before it's rapidly infiltrated into the rain garden you, you never have pooling puddling wa gray water that's a no-no. Right. Whereas with the kitchen sink, dark gray water, you're doing it subsurface. How does that work when you do experience a, a full winter where, you know, the ground freezes? Um, how do you, do you have to change your gray water system as the season changes? Or is there some way that you can set it up, you know, so that year round you can still be, you know, filtering your your gray water and and putting your dark gray water into that subsystem even when the ground is frozen gray water system works year-round wherever you are nice okay because uh well maybe not the arctic <laughs> but permafrost no permafrost yeah because uh the water is exiting your structure 
at above freezing temperatures. Yeah. So the only place where I can see it being a problem is if it's so cold that the water freezes before it exits your pipe. Mm. Okay. And that's, um, that's the minority of locations in the continental U.S. I'm assuming your listeners are mostly in the U.S. Yeah. So my brother lives in Flagstaff, you know, 9,000 foot elevation, um, alpine forest. And uses the gray water as I've been describing year round, no problem. Mm-hmm. Because when the water exits the pipe into the rain garden basin, it it melts the snow or ice right there and uh, all is good. Yep. With your dark gray water system, you should be fine too in most instances. In the really cold climates, you might need to Put your infiltration chamber below the frost line. Yep. But at that point, it's becoming less of a dark gray water reuse system, and it's becoming more like a septic system. Right. Because now you're starting to discharge the water below the horizon of maximum life. But my brother could do, in Flagstaff, could very easily do the kitchen sink system, as I proposed. Nice. Yeah. Because, again... It's gonna thaw. It's not coming out frozen, right? Yeah, and so I, I'm in northern. I'm in Vermont, so it is quite cold here. Um, and the the place that I had my tiny house parked for the majority of the time, there actually was a septic system on site. Um, so I had plugged my gray water into that existing septic system, but there was quite a long run of pipe. Um, that started out above ground and then went below ground, but not not below the frost line in order to get to that septic system from where I parked the house. And I never experienced, you know, that that part of the system never froze, even when it was, you know, polar vortex, negative 30 <laughs> degree Fahrenheit, like it the 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 drains still flowed. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. And uh, there's another option folks can have, too, being in a tiny home or a conventional home, you know, trailer or in the ground, is uh, you can set up what's called a gray water harvesting stub out. And it's a valve that allows you to direct your gray water either to the landscape or the sewer or septic. Your choice. Right. So if you wanted to seasonally redirect that gray water to the sewer septic you could mm-hmm. or you can direct it to landscape your choice so you know all options open and i you know i described that in full in my rainwater harvesting for drylands beyond volume two second edition book okay D- does anyone ever bury their their storage tanks you can do that it can make more sense in cold climates yeah, that's what I was thinking for, you know, getting it below the frost line. Yeah, it just your cost dramatically increases. Yeah. Because now you have excavation cost as well yeah. as tank cost. And you're going to have to have a pump of some sort to access yeah. the water. Yeah. Could be a hand pump. So another thing you could look at is I doubt you've got as much anywhere near as much winter water consumption as you do warm, hot months consumption. 
Mm-hmm. So you could have a uh, smaller underground tank uh, for winter use, and then you've got a larger above ground tank for warm hot weather use. You know that could pre-fill before the uh, the underground tank. Right, right. You know the two could be connected. You know one overflows to the next, but uh, that's something you could could look into. Cool. Yeah. It seems like it there are solutions to so many problems and and you know I would imagine that the average tiny home owner or somebody who's thinking about joining the movement is probably thinking like uh oh, rainwater harvesting that's too complicated you know I I'm going to just focus on getting this little house built you know I get the sense that this can be really simple if you want it to be Oh super simple so you know my system it's all gravity fed. I don't have any pumps on my system. Okay. And you know, just think about it. You're, you're set from the get-go because your, your roof is higher than you. It's higher than all your water needs. Uh-huh. So use that free power of gravity to move the water to the tank and from the tank to your sink or whatever. And uh, you, could, you can also... You could do, say, a bucket shower where you could fill water from tank, you know, into bucket and hang that. And uh, so you can have a little human power, too, in the system if you want. You don't have to. I like that myself, but others may not. But what I just find is all too often people go for the high-tech, high-cost appliance um, mentality. Where it's like, yeah, just give me give me the buttons and the switches. But I think that's short-sighted because if the power goes out, your whole system goes down. Yeah. So why not set up a system so the whole thing can work on gravity if power goes out. Mm-hmm. But if you you can augment the system with a pump or a pressure tank if you want. So when you do have power. It's, you know, like the modern high-tech home, but don't make it totally dependent on that or you're, you won't be resilient. You know, you would be shut down in Texas right now. Right. But if you do a gravity fed rainwater harvesting system, you would have been set the whole, through the whole system, the whole storm. Right. Right. You'd have your, you'd have your big tank that's not frozen because it's, you know, a lot of gallons of water and yeah, gravity fed. Yeah. So do you keep your tanks, are they higher than the house or are they, you know, above? No. They're not higher than the house. They're No, okay. They are, uh, the bottoms of the tanks are slightly higher than the foundation of my house. Okay. But they're vertical tanks. They're taller than they are wide. So as they collect with water, the, the height of my water increases. It never gets higher than mm-hmm. the top of the mm-hmm. roof, you know, which is the source of water. So basically I set it up so my the top two thirds of the tank drain with gravity into my kitchen sink. But uh when we're in a severe drought like now, then the water level drops below the sink. Okay. So then I have another another lower faucet which can access the water. Got it. Okay. And so there's there's a lot of different ways you can go about it, but that's how how I've gone about it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's also a means for me to. Uh, so when the 
when the the higher faucet at the kitchen sink when that starts to the flow starts to reduce I'm like oh it's time to conserve ah and uh if the flow totally stops like okay i better conserve even more because now i only have the the lower faucet available to me so it's a great feedback mechanism whereas um i've talked with a number of folks that have rainwater harvesting systems that's all automatic and they are not watching the water level in their tanks and then one day they're totally dry right because they never got the alert to start to conserve yeah got it yeah and if you're off if if you're off grid and you do run out of water chances are you can you can pay a service to truck in some water and fill your system get you through right right worst case scenario you can you can have a truck come and fill your tanks yeah you also mentioned i think right at the beginning of the interview you talked about condensate harvesting um yeah can you talk can you talk about that and and you know is that relevant to to tiny houses yeah definitely so if you're in a humid climate you could harvest uh condensate just off your roof in the cool morning hours um if it's if it's a metal roof that's pretty common uh, in the drier climate, it's like where I'm, I am. That's that's less common. But I mm-hmm. recently uh, learned of a a couple in uh, Texas that uh, harvest uh, up to sixty gallons a day of condensate off their, uh, I think it's a thirty by thirty barn roof, thirty by thirty foot barn roof, metal roof, in the humid mornings. And basically, what's going on there is. It's humid. There's a lot of moisture in the atmosphere, in the air, and mm-hmm. moisture will condense around cold objects. So um, the metal roof that cools in the night air, it's cooler in the early morning hours than the ambient air temperature. Yeah. And so the humidity in the air condenses on the roof, drains off the roof into your gutter, and then you can collect that. Cool. And a lot of vegetation, well, vegetation, it's more harvesting fog, uh, but it can also pull that air moisture out with surfaces that the water condenses on. So another way you can do it is it's uh, off uh, air conditioning units. They uh, All air conditioning units have condensate drains because the the coil in the air conditioning unit gets really cold. And uh, so atmospheric moisture condenses on that. So you can harvest that Mm. too. You can harvest more of that in humid climates or from air-conditioned spaces that have a lot of respiring bodies within them. And then the bodies are generating the moisture. Yep. So that, as far as how much you can collect, that's going to vary on your climate and site. But if you got an air conditioner already, might as well access that water rather than unconsciously draining away or not accessing it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of filled with wonder, just kind of rethinking about water harvesting, just going beyond gray water or sorry, going beyond rainwater harvesting and just starting to think about where are all, what are all the sources of water? Where's, you know, 
where is water being generated with that I can capture it rather than just ignoring it or letting it just fall somewhere where it's not getting put to a specific use? Well, that's great. That's exactly how I want you to be thinking. So what I like to do is I like to assess my site and see, okay, well, what are all the waters I have available? And then I look at each water source through four characteristics. What's its quality? What's its quantity? What's its availability? And what's its accessibility? So here at my site, I've got a good amount of rainwater coming off my roof of really high quality. But there's a lot more volume of water coming off my street. But it's of a lower quality. I don't want to drink that because of the oils and stuff in the street. No. So, um, so I prioritize the passive irrigation of perennial vegetation with street runoff mm-hmm. using the, the life of the soil to help filter that water. And then I don't need to use as much of my higher quality, lower volume roof runoff for that irrigation because I found an alternative water source for it. You get, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And then I do the same thing with the gray water. So the gray water, I don't, I don't want to drink that. But rather than just using my high quality roof runoff once, I can use it again via the gray water. And it's a higher quality water than the street runoff because I don't have the oils and heavy metals that are coming off the street. So I can actually use my gray water on some annual food crops even. Right. I'm just not uh, directing that on any edible part that I would eat uncooked. Got it. Got it. And uh, condensate, that's in my climate, it's going to be a really low volume, probably the lowest volume of all. Right. But it's higher quality than both gray water and street runoff. So um, I might set up, so, and I got to think too, like any place that's getting rainwater from a passive system that does not have a tank, uh-huh. it's only going to get the water when we get the rains. Whereas with my active tank system, okay, well, I can dole that water out as long as there's still water in the tank long after yeah. the rain. Yeah. So, um, I tend to send my condensate, which is available in the summer months when water needs of the plants are greater. I send condensate to same places that are just getting direct rain water, not tank water. Mm-hmm. Because when those passive water harvesting earthworks that are only getting rainwater are drying out in the summer, well, then the condensate is a water source that can help recharge. Got it. So I'm I'm uh, I'm trying to balance the strengths and weaknesses of the various <laughs> water sources with my on-site needs. Got it. 
and oh, sorry, I was just going to say, and thereby reducing my reliance on any one water source by having a much more dynamic integrated system of multiple sources. Yes. And that it, I, I get that. I see that pattern or, or that, that theme in, in how you've been describing this, this whole interview, just that there is, it's a system and you've built some redundancies into the system. So you're never relying on just one source of water or you're using it more than one time or you have backups for, for different things. Yeah. And, and I'm relying to the greatest degree possible on living systems as opposed to just manufactured systems. Right. Which helps sequester carbon and improve life for everybody. (laughs) Well, I could, I could definitely talk to you all, all day about this. Um, but I do want to ask you, um, just quick or to, to kind of explain the is there are there two volumes of your book or are there are there more than two yeah there's two and and so yeah what's the difference between volume one and volume two because you've kind of mentioned both yeah well first off if anyone's interested in the books make sure you get the new full color editions okay because they've been greatly revised and expanded so volume one that's that's where i recommend people typically begin That enables you to assess your site, your various water sources, and figure out uh, an integrated design for your whole system. And it gives you calculations to figure out correct tank size for your site Mm -hmm. and uh, estimate your water needs. And then it covers both passive water harvesting earthworks or rain gardens and active tank systems. Then the second book. That goes into much more detail, and it only covers the passive water harvesting, both rainwater, street runoff, and also gray water harvesting. Okay. But there's no no tank systems covered in that second book. Okay. And it goes in much more detail, step by step, how you implement myriad strategies, how to select the strategies for your site, you know, what's appropriate for your site, and then how do you implement Got it. And all, both are available at deep discount, direct from me, with no middle person taking a cut, at my uh, website, harvestingrainwater.com. Awesome. Awesome. And I'll, um, I'll put a link to that on the show notes page for this episode. Great. Which I can say, I will, it will be thetinyhouse.net slash 155. Um, so I'll put, I'll put links to your books and, um, any photos I might be able to, uh, harvest from, from you, uh, on that show notes page as well. Um, Brad Lancaster, thank you so, so much for your, um, just your, your time and your just attention. And I just really appreciated how thoroughly you have answered my questions, which probably all jumped around and were not that well organized. So I really appreciate you. Yeah, no, no problem. I appreciate the opportunity to share. And, and just two final things. Yeah, please. Is uh, another resource for folks to check out is uh, neighborhoodforesters.org. And that um, highlights a lot of the work we've been doing in the community public rights of ways. And for those folks with tiny houses where you got a small home footprint and 
maybe a very small lot, if a lot at all, this is a way you can access public or common land and help enhance it with uh, simple strategies. And and also wanted to mention, while we covered some passive heating and cooling strategies within the landscape, yep. just want to direct folks to my volume one book for a number of strategies that I unfortunately all too often seeing lacking in tiny homes, but are very easy to incorporate for how you can set up your, the, the location sizes of your windows and roof overhangs as they relate to those windows. Yep. to maximize your passive or free heating and cooling of your interior space. Yeah, yeah. And and that passive house design principles are, for some reason, they, they aren't used. As, I agree with you. They're not used a lot in tiny house design. And I, I do think that there's there's definitely opportunity there. Oh, and I do want to clarify one thing. So the the strategies that I emphasize in the book Unlike passive house, house spelled H-A-U-S, yeah. yep. they're all super cheap and very accessible for any income and, okay. uh, and any building type. Whereas passive house, H-A-U-S, H-A-U-S. tends to require uh, very, uh, much more expensive, extensive insulation and air exchange units. None of that is required. For the passive strategies I highlight in in my book, and that's in volume one. Yes, awesome. Chapter well, chapter four, volume <laughs> one, chapter four. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> Brad Lancaster, thank you so much. I'm going to buy your book as soon as we get off the phone. So, because um, I'm excited to to read more about it, and as I, you know, I'm I'm in between parking places for my tiny house, but as I look for potential land and place to park it. I'm, I really am excited to incorporate um, this perspective in, in what I'm looking for. Perfect. That sounds great. Tell yeah. me how it goes. I want to hear the I report. definitely will. Yeah. I might, maybe I'll have to have you on for a second, uh, a second interview at some point to, to go, to go over my system. I'm, I'm up for it. Thank you so much to Brad Lancaster for being a guest on the show today. You can find the show notes from this episode, including all the links that Brad mentioned and some photos of rainwater harvesting setups at thetinyhouse.net slash 155. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 155. Also, don't forget to head over to thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter to sign up for the Tiny Tuesdays newsletter so you don't miss my big announcement coming up in early April. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter. All right, that is all for this week. I am your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.